Okay, this morning's reading is from Matthew chapter 18, beginning at verse 15 on page 695. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault, just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take one or two brothers, others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. I tell you the truth, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I tell you that if two, two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three come together in my name, there I am with them. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, cancelled the debt and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I cancelled that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. I think it's sometimes uh, we Christians can send a, um, a bit of a confusing message to our world about uh, the topics of sin and forgiveness. Uh, the reason I say it is this, that on the one hand we can sometimes make um, public statements uh, whereby we're kind of like condemning particular kinds of sinful behaviour in others but on the other hand uh, some of the same behaviour is pretty well tolerated within the church. Uh, we've all heard about situations where financial and uh, sexual activity that not even the world tolerates that it's uh, discovered that uh, it's been going on in particular churches and even sometimes covered up. And when that happens in well-known churches, the media pounces, and rightfully so. 
but it can also happen in small churches i've noticed as well where you don't hear about it in the media for example i heard of a minister who a friend of mine was speaking to and my friend my friend asked him how his church was going and the the guy said oh it's going really well there's no problems in our church at all and my friend said, uh, oh, that's, that's great. Um, we, we got a few problems in our church. We had a, you know, a case of adultery was going on in our church, for example. And the other fellow said, oh, we've, we've got that. I mean, uh, our organist is currently having an affair with one of the elders in the church, but, uh, but it's okay. It hasn't caused any real disruptions within the church at all because uh, you know, people have adopted the attitude that we're just going to be very loving and very forgiving uh, towards them whilst they continue their affair. That's a true story. So on the one hand, um, churches can appear to be very intolerant and unforgiving towards those on the outside, but then we can be too tolerant and have a strange view of forgiveness towards those on the inside. It's no wonder the uh, Christian world, uh, the non-Christian world, sometimes is a bit confused by our message. And I wonder if sometimes we're a bit confused as well. Because after all, we want to stand against sin, but we also want to be forgiving, don't we? Now, you know, how do you match the two? When is it right to stand against sin? And when is it right to forgive? Now, in Matthew chapter 18, which you might want to open up uh, Uh, in your Bibles. Uh, We hear from Jesus on these questions. And in Matthew 18, we see that Jesus does have a policy on sin. Uh, I think these days you would call his policy a zero-tolerance policy. Uh, Last week, in the first half of this chapter, you would have seen something of this zero-tolerance policy uh, that Jesus has. Uh, as Peter preached on that passage. For example, in verses 1 to 4, Jesus has a zero-tolerance policy uh, towards pride amongst his people. Uh, The question is, who is the greatest in the kingdom? The answer from Jesus is that it's the person who makes himself like one of these children, humble and dependent. Uh, The next question was, you know, what if someone causes a follower of Jesus to sin? Well, in verses 5 and 6, Jesus says it'd be much better off for that person to get a giant stone, uh, attach it to some rope, tie the rope around their neck, and go and jump in the sea. Be better off doing that than to cause someone to sin. Well, what if you're, um, in, in verses 7 to 9, what if you're hand or your foot or your eye causes you to sin what does Jesus say he says well uh, slice it off gouge it out throw it away uh, because it's better to lose those things than it is to sin what he's saying is that sin is really really serious in fact it's so serious that in verse 8 and also in verse 9 that sin causes a person to be thrown into the eternal fire of hell. You see that? That is, sin cuts people off from God forever. Now, does that sound a bit tough? 
I want to ask you this. What do you think that sin is? Uh, If I were to ask you to define sin in just a few words, uh, what would you say? I know some people who would start rattling off a list of uh, particular kinds of behaviour, you know, like uh, greed and uh, um, adultery, murder, you know, theft and so on and so forth. Uh, Some churches have put together what they call the seven mortal sins. Uh, You heard of those? Uh, It's been updated recently. They've added uh, some new sins onto it. Uh, One of the sins is failure to care for the environment as a new sort of contemporary kind of slant on things like that. Now, I mean, if you're going to just do up a list of behaviour, then you can't do that in a few short words, can you? That's going to be a pretty long sort of a list. So how's this for a definition? Sin stands for selfish, independent nature. It's an, it's an attitude which says that I want to live my life my way, I want to be independent from God, and that's my nature. S-I-N, selfish, independent nature. Uh, what, what it means is that we say to God, I don't want you to rule my life, And therefore, in the day of judgment, God says, okay, if that's the way you want it, if you don't want me in your life, then I will have nothing further to do with you forever. And that's hell. Complete and total separation from God and from all of his goodness forever. Our selfish, independent nature is the heart of the problem and the wrong things which we do are the symptoms or the outworkings of that, uh, of that root problem. But if we've experienced the love of God in our lives, then our hearts should now be actually quite different to that. Uh, we're still going to have these sinful manifestations in various ways, but we are going to be people who actually, in our hearts, want to change. We want to live for God. So, What if a fellow Christian is behaving in a sinful way? Uh, Maybe even they're behaving in a sinful way towards you. What should you do about that? Well, we come to today's passage. Let me read verses 15 through to 17 for you. Verse 15, Jesus says, If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. But if you will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Now, when someone is behaving uh, sinfully, uh, what is our most natural response? Uh, If you're like me, my natural response is to get a bit angry, maybe to go and tell one or two other people about them, run them down a little bit, and so on. That's a kind of a natural response. But that is not what Jesus says. Uh, Jesus here, having established that sin is serious, having established that sin has got big eternal consequences he really says to us well shouldn't you actually be concerned for the spiritual well-being of that person 
Jesus says that you should go and talk to the person just between the two of you. Um, it, it, it doesn't need to involve others. Uh, you, you need to, out of, out of respect, to keep this private and go and talk to the person. You see, that person may not know that their behaviour is wrong. They might be uh, an immature Christian uh, who hasn't actually worked through that area in their life as yet. Uh, well, they may, actually, they may know that it's wrong, but they've been kind of caught in that particular behavioural pattern. And it may well be that they end up becoming very grateful to you that out of your love and out of compassion that you've raised the topic with them, that you've been able, they've been able to discuss it with you and that you've helped them to repent. Now, do you see what the goal here is? In verse 15, have a look at verse 15, the goal is not to condemn the person, the goal is not to judge the person, the goal is not to get it all off your chest and to vent your spleen. What is the goal in verse 15? The goal is to, to win the person, to win the person uh, over to, uh, uh, to, to what you're saying, to help them to get back on track. Uh, in Jude, verse 26, it, it describes this as being like reaching in and snatching that person out of the fire. You're actually rescuing them. And it's great when it works. It's great when the person is really helped by that and actually does get back on track and is reconciled to you. But what if it doesn't work out that way? What if the person won't listen to you? What if the person says, you're wrong? What if the person says, no, mind your own business. Um, you know, you've got no right to be raising this matter with me. Do you just leave it at that? Well, not if you love the person. In verse 16, Jesus says, you go and speak to that person a second time. And uh, this time you take one or two other people along with you. And the, the rationale here being that if they won't listen to you, then maybe they'll take the matter more seriously if they realise that others actually share the same viewpoint and that others are also concerned for their spiritual well-being. Jesus says, so that the matter can be established by two or three witnesses, that two or three people can say that we think that this is a cause for concern. Hopefully they'll listen. But what if they don't listen even then? What should you do? Well, have a look at verse 17. In verse 17, Jesus says that you should tell it to the church. Tell it to the church. Tell it to the congregation is the word there. Now, sometimes this is necessary uh, for the holiness and the purity of the congregation. Uh, Paul addresses a similar issue in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 uh, where he says that a little yeast can actually work its way through the whole batch of dough. And uh, so you don't want others who may also observe this behaviour to think the behaviour is okay and do it themselves. Uh, so that's one reason. But the goal here in Matthew 18 in telling the church is, is still so that the person might listen. 
that they might realise the utter seriousness of the matter and repent. What if they still won't listen? Well, sadly, in verse 17, you reach the point where you have to start treating the person as being a pagan or a tax collector. Now, that is code for uh, unbeliever, a non-Christian. Now, when you think about it, it makes sense. Because given that you have lovingly gone to that person, you have uh, showed them from the Bible that they're not living God's way, uh, that you've then gone back with one or two others and you've again reiterated that point, by their repeated refusal to listen, what they are saying is, I know what God wants, but I know what I want. And I am going to live my way, not God's way. Thank you very much. And so you have to ask the question, is the person actually a true follower of Jesus? Because if they're a follower of Jesus, then they will want to live God's way. They will want to repent. So I think that's why, Paul, uh, why Jesus says there that you treat the person as a pagan or a tax collector. You're actually right at that point where there's a big question mark as to whether or not they're a true disciple of Jesus at all. So what it's saying is that we should not be tolerating sin, uh, not in ourselves, uh, not in our church, because sin is serious. But what about forgiveness? Uh, now, you've got to hand it to uh, the Apostle Peter, as we've seen as we've gone through Matthew's Gospel. Whenever there's uh, a pause in the conversation, Peter will step in and say something or he'll ask a question. And uh, that's exactly what he does here. In verse 21, if you care to look at that, verse 21, Peter comes up with a question. It says, Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? You see that? Now, I, you know, I'm reading into the text here, but I reckon that Peter must have thought that that was pretty generous, that uh, you, know, you should forgive a person seven times. But uh, Jesus says, no. Um, Peter, how about thinking about 77 times? Right? Now, what do, you, what do you think Jesus is saying there? Um, do you think Jesus is saying that it's, that it's actually 77 times? Do you think that Peter should then carry around a little logbook with him and whenever someone you know, sees them sinning and they're not repentant, you know, he just sort of makes a note in the, in the logbook and uh, counts it up, you know, 74, 75, 76, 77, right, that's it, no, no more forgiveness, uh, we'll kind of ditch this relationship. Do you think that's what's going on there? Can you imagine if you conducted, those of you who are married, can you imagine if you conducted your marriage that way? Um, in April, Cassie and I clock up 20 years of marriage. And uh, can you imagine that if every time throughout our marriage that I, every time that I had acted selfishly uh, and, you know, been sorry about that, but every time I'd acted selfishly, Cassie had kind of written it up in the logbook 74, 75, 76, 77, right, no more forgiveness, Scott. 
I tell you, if she'd done that, the next 19 and a half years of marriage wouldn't have been much fun. (laughs) There wouldn't have been too much love in it. Now, I think Jesus is saying here that forgiveness isn't like that. Certainly God's forgiveness is not like that. And he tells tells the, the disciples a story in verses 21 through to 35. It's a story about a servant who owed his master a large sum of money, uh, 10,000 talents, we're told, and uh, think uh, millions of dollars. Think an unrepayable loan. Think an Australian mortgage these days, all right? That's, you know, you're talking mega bucks. This guy owed his master a sum of money that was impossible for him to repay. So in verse 26, he begged his master for mercy. He says, don't throw me in a jail. Give me more time. I know I probably can't pay it back, but let me try. He begged his master for mercy. And in verse 27, the master took pity on him, cancelled the debt and let him go. I mean, that is amazing generosity, isn't it? Can you imagine the bank manager, you go down there and say, look, I'm having a bit of trouble paying the bills, and the bank manager says, takes your mortgage and rips it up and says, no worries, cancel the debt. You know, this is unthinkable, this is unspeakable, this is amazing generosity. But what follows in the very next verse is something which is amazing in how appalling it is. Because the servant, in verse 28 leaves the master's room he goes out and finds a fellow servant who owed him a few bucks he grabs this bloke by the neck he starts to choke him and he says where's my money you pay back my money straight away or else and the guy says I can't I can't I can't and he says right has him thrown in a prison for um, absconding on the loan over a few measly bucks it's a stunning contrast And when the master found out in verse 32, he says to this servant, he said, look, I cancelled your debt. Shouldn't you have shown mercy to the person who owed you a few dollars? And so he threw him into prison instead. And in verse 35, Jesus concludes the story by saying, have a look at this, this is how my heavenly father will treat you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. Friends, what we see in this passage is, firstly, that God is intolerant towards sin, but yet he is amazing in his forgiveness. Now, how can he be both? How can he not tolerate sin, yet also forgive sin at the same time? How can he do that? It doesn't make sense, does it? Uh, Because he doesn't just sweep our sin under the carpet, does he? He doesn't just say, look, don't worry about your sin, it doesn't matter, we'll just forget about it. No, how is he intolerant towards sin and forgiving at the same time? Well, it only makes sense through the cross, through the death of Jesus. Uh, The disciples were yet to experience the cross, but we know that when Jesus died on the cross, that something extraordinary happened because two of God's great passions converged. Firstly, his passionate hatred of sin 
And secondly, his passionate love for his creation, his passion to forgive, his passion against sin and his passion for forgiveness converged on the cross. When Jesus, his own son, uh, received the full penalty, uh, the full hatred of God's sin was poured out on Jesus. So that our debt could be cancelled and God could offer us unlimited forgiveness to anyone, to anyone who trusts in Jesus and who now rejects the selfish, independent nature. Anyone who now wants to live for God and trusts in Jesus can be forgiven. Now that's the gospel, isn't it? And what we see here is that the gospel should shape our relationships with each other. Um, especially when a brother or sister uh, is behaving in a sinful way or has somehow wronged us. Uh, now we see this in uh, what I think is a, a rather cryptic comment that uh, you might have noticed that I skimmed over earlier on uh, in verses 18 to 20. I'm going to go back to that uh, comment now. Uh, because in verses 18 20, remember, this comes at the point when Jesus had just said that when someone sins, that you should go and talk to that person, speak to them about it. And he said that the end result of that process is one of two things, that either uh, you will have won your brother over or that you're now to consider the person to be an unbeliever. It's the two options that Jesus presents. And having said that, he makes this rather cryptic comment. Have a look at verse 18. He says, I tell you the truth, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three come together in my name, there I am with them. Now, we could probably spend a fair bit of time on those few verses, but let me just make one or two comments. Firstly, put your thinking caps on. Can you remember a time earlier when Jesus has said something similar to this? Think about it especially those who have been here for the whole Matthew series. When did Jesus say something similar to this? Any thoughts? Want a hint? All right. Remember uh, when uh, Jesus said to his disciples, who do the people say that I am? Uh, some say that you're John the Baptist, some say that you're Elijah, some say that you're one of the other prophets. And he said, well, who do you say that I am? Peter says, "You are." The, Peter got it right. You are the Christ, the Son of the Living God. Now, well, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, Peter, but my Father in heaven has revealed. Your name is no longer, you know, Simon. I'm going to call you Peter now, which means rock. And on this rock, I'll build my church. And he says, "This is in chapter 16. I will give you the keys of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven." Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. 
How does the binding and the loosing take place? It is through the use of the keys of heaven. What are the keys of heaven? It's the gospel, isn't it? It's the great truths that Peter had, uh, God had revealed to Peter that Jesus is the Christ, that he's the son of the living God and that he would go to the cross and be raised again. The key to heaven is the gospel. That is the means by which a person is bound or they are loosed. When a person rejects the gospel, they are bound. They remain bound to their selfish, independent nature and the consequences of that forever. However, when they accept the gospel, they are loosed. They are released from the debt that they owed to God and they are forgiven by God. Now, it's this gospel which should shape all of our relationships with uh, people outside of the church, but also people within the church. So that when we speak to that brother or sister who has sinned or is sinning, the gospel, when we speak to them, we speak to them about the gospel. Uh, that's the only basis upon which we can talk to them. And the, the gospel means that we can bring to them both a warning and also an assurance. The warning is that if they continue to reject God's rule over their lives, then judgment awaits. They are bound. And sometimes um, you actually need to say that to a person. Uh, when a person is stubbornly refusing to repent of their sin, you need to actually, because you love them, because you believe in hell, you want to save them from it. And so you need to speak those words of warning. But there is also in the gospel that warm assurance that if they repent, then God will forgive them because of Christ's death. Now, this is important for us because, friends, um, we, will each, we will sin against each other uh, in a community like this, in our church. So many of us in the church. And the bottom line is that God is still working in our lives, isn't he? God's still working in your life. He's still working in my life. He's got a lot of cleaning up to do in my life. There are still things in my life that I need to, to change. And uh, with God's strength, that can happen. But the gospel means that when someone sins against us, firstly, we're going to be willing to speak to them about it lovingly, with humility, with a concern for them. But secondly, the gospel means that we'll also be willing to forgive them to write off that debt, to be reconciled in relationship to them. Now, you and I have experienced incredible forgiveness from God. Uh, we are, in a sense, we are just like that servant, aren't we? Whose, whose unrepayable debt was cancelled. How much more, therefore, 
should we be prepared to offer forgiveness to those who sin against us? For the petty things that uh, they've done which have caused us to be offended, for the minor things that they've done to us, for the things which have cut fairly deep and um, we, uh, we are hurt by, uh, but yet, when we consider the debt which we owed that has been cancelled, we realise that to hold a grudge against them, to be unforgiving towards them, is just like that servant who wouldn't forgive the bloke who owed him a few dollars, who had just had an unrepayable debt of his own cancelled. And so we need to be prepared to forgive. Uh, those who are repentant, those who seek to have relationship with us restored. Jesus has a zero-tolerance policy towards sin, but he gave up his life for our forgiveness. And so let me just ask you before I close to um, personally reflect on this and to consider, is there someone whom you need to extend that offer of forgiveness to? Is there someone who you need to get back on track with? Is there someone who you need to, to speak to about something which they're doing which is not honouring to God and may be affecting you as well? Uh, because that would be to put into practice what Jesus is saying here. That would be to not just listen to the word of God but to go and do what it says. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for uh, your incredible love in cancelling the debt that we owed towards you. Father, we pray for ourselves that um, we would have that same gospel mindset towards others who have sinned against us and those who are caught in sin. Uh, may we have such a love for them that we would be prepared to um, put our relationship at risk and speak to them uh, for their benefit. We pray for ourselves as well, Lord God, that we would be willing to receive humble, loving rebuke from others uh, as they seek to care for our spiritual well-being. May the gospel of Jesus shape all of our relationships, uh, not only with the, the outsiders, but also amongst those within your church. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.